Well, good morning, Bridgeway. How we doing? It is good to see you. First uh, Timothy chapter four is where we're going to be this morning. Page nine ninety two in. The blue Bible's underneath the seat in front of you. As you're going there, just want to reiterate, you heard in the announcements about Worship, Prayer, and Healing Night. That's coming up in three weeks. Trinity Life Center, sure hope you're planning on joining us. That's just going to be a powerful time of, well, worship, prayer, and we're going to, we're going to ask God to do some healing. So uh, would love for you to be able to join us. If you want to serve on the prayer team for that event, there's a training coming up this Saturday with the, with the one and only Pastor Parnell Lovelace down at Center of Praise Ministry. So I'd invite you to attend that. A uh, night of prayer needs people to pray. So if you're a, a prayer warrior or you want to be one, we'd love to have you be a part of uh, the prayer team there. And then also just want to make sure we're all tracking on the fact that we're in the middle of our 40-day fast as a church right now. We do this every year to prepare for worship, prayer, and healing night as we, we, we set something aside for the purpose of focusing more intensely on the Lord, devoting ourselves more to prayer, and asking that God would move powerfully at that event. So if you have not joined with us yet, good news, you can still do a 21-day fast. So would invite you to, to join in on that. Again, the point is not kind of religious duty or anything like that. The point is just to set something aside so that when we think of that thing, we're reminded to pray and to, to focus our attention on the Lord. So, again, would encourage you to, to, to participate in the fast and, and join us on the 19th. First Timothy chapter 4, we're in part 11 of our Called by God series through the book of First Timothy. And I've entitled this message, Training with Purpose. And then the subtitle is, Our Attention Influences our outcomes. Our attention influences our outcomes. And I immediately want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank on the handout you received when you walked in, and it's this. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Our attention influences our outcomes. In other, in other words, what you and I pay attention to has a dramatic influence on just about every area of our lives. It influences our character. It influences our mood. It influences how we behave in the day-to-day and how we behave in the most important moments of our lives. And because that is true, it is absolutely vital that you and I develop the skill, and make no mistake about it, it is a skill, the skill of paying attention to what we pay attention to. I think this is an incredible time to be alive in so many different ways, and and one of those ways is our our access to information and perspectives. Our access to information and perspectives. And I I think about how how it was not always that way. I compare how things are now to how things are in the not-so-distant past. Like, when I was a child, I remember waking up in the morning walking out into the front yard at, at, at my house and getting the newspaper, remember those? And bringing it inside and pulling out the sports page and finding the NBA box scores to see if the Kings had won the previous night or not. Usually they hadn't. And now the idea of waiting until the following day to hear a sports result, I mean, that just seems absurd. I can find out that the Kings are losing in real time in any number of ways, right? Their information is readily available to me. And like with anything, this new access to information, the new access to perspectives has a lot of benefits. Like for example, any, like literally anyone, technology has given a voice to anyone who wants one. 
I mean, anyone can start a YouTube channel or a website or a podcast. I don't know if you have, have had the chance to listen. Pastor Lance and I started a podcast called Engaging Culture, where we just talk about stuff going on in the world and try to bring some, hopefully, biblical wisdom and insight to it. And when we started that podcast, we didn't have to pitch the idea to a studio. We didn't have to get anyone to back us. We just said, hey, we're just going to start talking and we'll see if anybody listens. Maybe our moms will listen. I don't know. But we could just do that. And I think that's incredible. I love that technology makes that possible. But there are downsides to that as well. For example, it can become difficult to, say, distinguish between a legitimate news source and a fake news site that is dressed up to look real. And fake news is getting more and more sophisticated to fool us. And our lives are going to be different Our thought patterns are going to be different. Our character is going to be different based on what we give our attention to. So it is critical that we learn to pay attention to what we pay attention to. And I think about in the scriptures, how often and in so many different ways and in different words, the scriptures encourage us to this end. I think about the words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4, where he famously says, guard your heart with all diligence, because everything you do flows from it. Pay attention to what's going on in your heart. I think about the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7, where he says, whoever hears my commands and does them. In other words, whoever pays attention to my teaching and then puts that teaching into practice, that person will be like a wise person who has built their house upon the rock. Or I think about Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, "Whoever those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Those who are paying attention to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Those who are connected to the Holy Spirit are children of God, are able to live out their identity as children of God. Why does the Bible speak to this so much? Because what we pay attention to matters. And what we pay attention to forms us. If you and I, if we give our attention to hateful and divisive voices, and there are many in our society, of course, all of them are the voices that disagree with us. None of the voices we like are divisive, right? That was a joke. If we pay attention to hateful and divisive voices, we're going to become harmful and divisive people. If we give our attention to voices that are more interested in defending a side than telling the truth, we will become people more interested in defending a side than telling the truth, being the truthful people that God commands us to be. If we give our attention to voices that are simple and extreme, we will be people who fail to appreciate the complexity of so much that happens in our world. If we give our attention to voices that encourage us to demonize our enemies instead of love our enemies as Christ commands, we will indeed become people who demonize our enemies instead of people who seek to understand others with Christ-like humility and love. And voices that encourage us to demonize are a dime a dozen in our culture today. And some of them, sadly, try to attach the name of Jesus to it. And it's sickening. If we, if we pay attention to voices that value power over integrity, we'll be people who value power over integrity. It's why it's so important that we've got to learn the skill of paying attention to what we pay attention to. And by the way, this is a side note. I've always, I've always believed this, and I want to share it this morning, that if you cannot argue persuasively against something that you believe, you do not understand what you actually believe. 
If you cannot argue persuasively, persuasively, I'm not talking about a straw man, I'm talk, not talking about, oh, this is what they think and, and, and not being fair. I'm saying if you can't argue persuasively against what you actually think, you do not know what you actually think. And I've put, tried to put this into practice in my own life. In fact, uh, there was one time in seminary, I took an oral communications class, and as part of the class, we had to give a persuasive speech. And I just thought, okay, I really value the ability to really dig in and understand perspectives I don't agree with. So I'm going to give a whole speech arguing for something that I don't believe at all. So I gave what I thought was a pretty persuasive speech about why steroids should be allowed in professional sports. I almost convinced myself. I think I may have convinced some people in the class, and I never told them that I didn't actually believe it. Because that, you know, it's part of the deal. I just wanted to be, well, I wanted to dig into something maybe I didn't actually believe. And here's what I found. As I have sought, and if you know me at all, you know that I am a person of passionate conviction about a wide range of issues. But I can tell you this is, this is the absolute truth. There is not a passionate conviction that I hold that I could not persuasively argue against. And as I have thought, as I, as I have sought, to be a reasonable and nuanced and thoughtful person of conviction, I have found this standard that I've held myself to, that I must be able to argue persuasively against anything I say I believe, to be extraordinarily helpful. And I commend it to you as something that will help you in that way as well. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. If you and I only listen to people who agree with us, our worlds will become smaller, our minds will become more closed. God says in so many different places, pay attention to what you pay attention to. Pay attention to that which helps you grow in honesty, in integrity, and in understanding. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is talking to Timothy about this very idea. He's helping to direct Timothy to ensure that Timothy is paying attention to the right things. And that what he is paying attention to are voices that are going to form him in the right way so that he can be a maximally effective Leader. So, here we go. First Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. If you put these things, the things that I have taught you, before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, Timothy, I want you to take what I have taught you, and I want you to share it with the household of faith, the brothers and sisters, the family of God. I want you to share these things. And what was interesting to me is I was researching this passage. A lot of commentators made a big deal about this word that is translated put before. And a lot of commentators made a big deal saying that that is a word that implies gentleness and kindness. Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, I want you to teach God's people. And I want you to do it in a way that is gentle, that is kind, that is persuasive. Is there a time to get riled up? Is there a time where you need to kind of shut down things that are destructive? Yeah, there sure are. And, 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 and Paul talks about those things in the passage that Pastor Lance covered last week. But Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, when you're with God's kids, when you're in the household of God, you need to be kind, you need to be gentle, you need to be persuasive and competent. But again, with kindness and gentleness. There are leaders out there who will seek to lead by domination, who will seek to lead with intimidation, who will seek to lead with harshness. That's not how we do things in the kingdom of God. Lead with gentleness and kindness. And he says, if you do these things, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, a couple things here. First of all, this word good, it, it, it implies high moral quality, 
But it also, it also implies attractiveness or winsomeness. In fact, if you were trying to express the concept of handsomeness, this is the word that you would use. I'm fairly confident Paul's not trying to say you will be a handsome servant of Christ Jesus. Maybe he was, I don't know. But that's the idea. The idea is there's an attractiveness and a winsomeness to Timothy's leadership. So, so what is that? What, what, what are we supposed to do with that? Listen. If you're a person who leads, and wherever you lead, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the business world, whether it's leading your household, whether it's leading in a, in a peer group, if you lead in a way that is gentle and respectful, if you lead from a place of genuine love for God and genuine love for people, there will be a winsomeness to your leadership, an attractiveness to your leadership that will simply be absent if you're just about yourself. If you're in it for your own ego, if you're in it for your own selfish desires. Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, if you want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, lead in this way, with gentleness, with kindness. And then it's important to note that he doesn't say, listen, Timothy, if you do these things, you're going to be a good leader. He says you're going to be a good servant. Make no mistake about it. Christian leadership is servanthood. Period. Full stop. Bottom line. No exceptions. Christian leadership is servanthood. If you're not ready to serve, you're not ready to lead and lead God's people. There's not a lot of passages in the Bible that I would say that passage is legitimately funny. But there is one, and it's in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem. And James and John come up to him and they say, Jesus, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase here. They say, Jesus, hey, listen, when you become king, because they thought he was going to become king, when you become king, let us sit at your right and left hand. It's basically the equivalent of them saying, hey, Jesus, you're going to be president. How about a couple of cabinet positions for your boys? They're after power. They see Jesus is going to be in power and they want, they want some of that. And Jesus essentially turns to him and he says, listen, guys, I understand that in the world you live in, not, not unlike ours today, in the world you live in, leaders and those in authority, they're domineering. They can be harsh with people. They're concerned about power. They're concerned about prestige. They're, they're concerned about, about everybody just respecting them because of their position. Understand that's not the way it works in the kingdom. We're all about a culture of honor in the kingdom. But understand, if you want to lead in the kingdom of God, you serve. You serve, and then you serve. You want to be a greater leader, you serve more. Leadership is service. And I'm telling you, if you want to lead, but you're not ready to serve, you're not ready to lead. If you want to lead, but you're not ready to serve, you're not ready to lead. And listen, come on. I understand why leaders don't serve. There are some practical benefits to focusing on your own power, focusing on your own authority. You'll have some short-term success, but in the end, you're only going to hurt people. So don't do it. If you want to lead, serve. And then keep serving. Because Christian leadership is servanthood. Paul says you'll be able to do these things, to teach in this manner with the heart of a servant, because you've been trained in the words of faith and the good teaching or doctrine that you have followed. To to use our words from earlier, Paul is saying you're going to be able to serve and love people because you have paid attention to what you've paid attention to. You paid attention to the words of faith. You have been nourished by them. The Greek word carries that connotation. And because you've been nourished by the word of God, you're ready to serve people well. And then because you've paid attention to good doctrine, doctrine just means teaching, because you've sat under good teaching, you're going to be ready to lead people well. 
And I just want to, I want to be careful because I don't want us to get too hung up on this word doctrine. Because, I mean, you see it in some secular contexts occasionally. But at least, in, to me, that is a very churchy word. And let's just be honest. It's not a word that exudes a bunch of warmth. We're not like, doctrine, yay. That just mm, fills me with warm fuzzies, right? And it's easy, I think, for, for a lot of us, even as Christ followers, to say, ah, you know, doctrine, I don't really want to get into doctrine. I'm not that into, you know, it's not that important to me. I just, you know, it's all that kind of heady stuff. I don't want to pay attention to it. Make no mistake about it. Every single person with a pulse lives by doctrine. Every single person with a pulse lives by doctrine. Every single one of us have teaching, have ideas, have concepts, have influences that dictate the way that we live our lives. Every single person lives by doctrine. And anybody, you don't even have to be a Christian. Every single person has core concepts and beliefs that influence the way that they live their lives. So the question is not, do you live by doctrine? Because you do, whether you realize it or not. The question is, is it good doctrine? The question is, is it Christian doctrine? The question is, are the, the core fundamental truths of our faith practically making a difference in your life? Are they the bedrock of your life? It's not, nobody, nobody lives by no doctrine. The question is, is it good doctrine? Is it sound doctrine? So I want to ask you, Paul talks about the words of faith. What are the words that are driving your life? What are the voices that have your ear? Are you intentional about answering those questions? What is the doctrine that is driving your life? What is nourishing you? Are you answering those questions purposefully? Do you think about that? Or do you just kind of let life happen to you? Are you letting destructive or divisive voices influence you? Or are you paying attention to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Are you paying attention to the truth of God's word? Are you letting that form you? Paul says to Timothy, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus because you've paid attention to what you've paid attention to. And you've immersed yourself in the words of faith and you've sat under solid teaching. Is that true for you? And he continues And this is kind of a special weekend for me to get to teach this text because this is literally my favorite verse in the entire Bible. He continues, 1 Timothy 4.7, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Our attention influences our outcomes. So, Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Myths. Instead, train yourself for godliness. Now, here's the challenge of this, and I'll illustrate it this way. I've been thinking about this. I just don't think there are very many people who wake up in the morning and say to themselves, you know, I'm a jerk. I'm just a jerk. There's no other way to explain it. I'm just a jerk. I'm a dirtbag. I just treat people terribly. I'm a jerk. And yet, quick show of hands here, how many of us would we say, would, would, how many of us would say, I know at least one jerk, personally. I know at least one person who I would call a jerk. Okay, most of us, the rest of you are probably lying. <laughs> we all know at least one jerk. So the only conclusion I can draw from that is that there are a lot of jerks running around. <laughs> and they are blissfully unaware of their jerkishness. <laughs> maybe you're one of them. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm one of them. Who's to say? Other people, I guess. 
But here, here's my point. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I, I look forward to basing my life today on that which is irreverent, silly, and false. Nobody does that on purpose. So I think it's easy for us to hear a verse like this and say, okay, yeah, yeah, of course, I shouldn't, I shouldn't base my life on what is irreverent, silly, or false. Got it, but come on. Our culture is saturated by what is irreverent, silly, and false. Even the Christian world is too often saturated by what is irreverent, silly, and false. I want to suggest to you that just like it's not enough to say I'm not a jerk, because everybody thinks they're not a jerk, it's not enough for us to simply say, yeah, 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 I don't do that. Because I, I just want to question, is it possible that some of us are buying into what is irreverent, silly, and false, and we don't even realize it? Because I think a lot of us do. And the reason we do that, the reason why what is irreverent, silly, and mythical gains traction in our world, there are a few different reasons for it. And the first is this. One, and I'm just going to give you a couple. That just, these are my, kind of my thoughts on the, the issue. Number one, psychologists have known for decades that you and I come absolutely hardwired with what is called confirmation bias. If you've taken any classes in psychology, you know about this. And confirmation bias tells us that you and I, again, we are hardwired to believe that which confirms the opinions we already hold. We are hardwired to believe that. And we are hardwired to reject that which challenges what we already believe. Here's what that means. That means that you and I, again, we are hardwired to accept that which confirms our opinions even if it is irreverent, silly, and false. And we're hardwired to reject that which might challenge our thinking, even if it is logical and truthful. Do you see how dangerous that is? Do you see how dangerous that is? I think about this all the time. And just because I'm aware of it doesn't mean that I myself am not immune to the effects of confirmation bias. So the best thing I know how to do, the best thing I've always tried to do my entire life as a Christ follower is I've just always tried to say to God, God, listen, I want to believe what is true about you. And I want to believe what is true about the world. I don't simply want to have my opinions confirmed. I don't simply want to buy into sentimental nonsense that makes me feel good. I want to believe what is true about you, and I want to believe what is true about the world. So if I come in contact with ideas that challenge my thinking, and if I need to change, if I'm wrong about something, give me the wisdom and the courage and the honesty to do so. I want to believe what is true, even if it means I have to change. And I'm not perfect at that by any means. But I've found just try, trying to be self-aware and honest has been extraordinarily helpful. The second issue is this. So that's kind of the way that we, we deal with irreverent, silly myths as it comes to encountering ideas out in the world. Let's talk about our own hearts for a second. See, too many of us, we tell ourselves irreverent, silly myths. We believe that which is not true about ourselves, about our families, about our lives, because if we're brutally honest, dealing with what is true is too painful. Dealing with what is true is too painful. So we choose, consciously or unconsciously, to believe that which is false. And listen, this comes down to an issue of identity. This is an issue of identity, plain and simple. Because listen, if your identity is, is insecure, I don't really blame you. For not wanting to deal with the difficult truth of what's really going on in your heart. I don't really, I don't want to blame you because, because if you're, if you're insecure, that's going to be really hard to deal with. And I get why we buy into what is not true to protect ourselves. It essentially, it's a numbing agent. 
that keeps us from having to face pain. But listen, there's a reason why the inability to feel pain is not a blessing. It's a medical disorder. Because pain helps us see how we need to change. And this is, this is such a gift from God that God gives us a secure identity. If we can look to the cross of Jesus Christ and see that the one who knows everything in the darkest spots of our heart, that his response was not condemnation, his response was to become a man in the person of Jesus Christ and to die for our sins and for our redemption. When we know that is true, we can look inside our hearts honestly and without fear. Because the one who sees everything loves us perfectly. And listen, come on now. Lies, we believe them because they feel good for a moment, but they're only going to hurt us. And Jesus invites us and he resources us and he equips us to be truthful people. What lies are you telling yourself? Because you don't want to face the truth. Facing the truth might be painful, but it's your liberation. Jesus wasn't kidding around when he said the truth will set you free. And then the third component, of the, uh, co- component is this. Let's just be honest. When it comes to irreverent, silly myths, we love pointing it out in other people, right? That's like an American pastime. And like social media has, speaking of steroids, like allowed us to do that on steroids, right? We love pointing out irreverent, silly myths in other people. But man, do we get upset when people point out the ones that we believe, right? We get real mad when people try to challenge our own thinking or to suggest that maybe we're wrong about an issue. But the good thing is, is that I feel like culturally we've just kind of decided this, that when we're confronted with information that challenges what we already think, we can just get offended instead of dealing with it. That that's what we're supposed to do. We're just supposed to get offended. We don't think critically, we don't evaluate our own thoughts, but we just get offended. And I just think it's kind of funny that in our culture today, uh, criticizing millennials for being easily offended is sort of in vogue right now. And that is certainly true, that millennials are easily offended. But, but, careful, careful, you're laughing, I'm coming for you next. (laughs) Offense does not discriminate between generations. All right, all right. People are offended all across the age spectrum. We get offended when when our beliefs are challenged. And listen, let me be very, very clear about this. Offense is a thoroughly selfish and useless human emotion. Sorry if that offended you. No, I'm not. Not even a little bit sorry. Offense is a thoroughly selfish and useless human emotion. We should not be asking the question, am I offended by this information? Am I offended by having my perspective challenged? The question we need to ask is, is this perspective true? Am I wrong about something? Do I need to change? Maybe the answer is no. And we can, and, and having to engage with different ideas can actually reaffirm what we believe. But maybe the answer is yes. And we need to change. We were wrong about something about God or something about the world or something, you know, it's just some issue that's out there. And we need to change. And I've always thought it's so weird. This is an identity issue as well. It's so weird that we're so offended by that possibility. Because I've always thought, man, if I'm wrong about something, I want to know. <laughs> Because to have to be wrong about something and to have that pointed out, man, that's a gift. It really is. Because you know what that means? It means I don't have to be wrong anymore. I can change. And my identity is not in my beliefs about issues, my, even my theology. My identity is in Christ. So if I'm out of line, man, to have that lovingly pointed out and to wrestle with that and to change, Guided by God's Spirit, guided by God's Word. Man, that's a blessing. That's a gift. Don't be offended 
at different ideas. Ask the question, is this true? Ask the question, is this true? Avoid irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with them. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And listen, it's funny to me, no one would ever say, hey, uh, you don't really need any school or anything to be a surgeon. Just get to the hospital, wash your hands, scalpel, body, let's do this. We'll figure it out. The organs are big, come on. No one would ever say that, right? Or, or no college-level mathematics student would ever say, oh, you know, multivariable calculus, linear algebra, I'll just kind of figure it out. Right? These things inquire, require intensive training. Any, any, we know this. Any skill, whether it's something big like open-heart surgery or something small like a simple household repair, any skill requires ongoing quality training. And godliness is no different. Godliness is no different. You and I are no more likely to wake up tomorrow just randomly with Christ-like character than we are to wake up tomorrow as virtuosos on the violin. It just doesn't happen. It requires training. It requires a lifestyle of immersing ourselves in the Scriptures. It requires a lifestyle, and I just, gosh, I'm so terrible at this. I wish I was better at it. It requires a lifestyle of quieting down the noise enough to listen to the Spirit of God. It requires a lifestyle of consciously seeking to honor God in the little things, so that then when the big things come along, we're prepared to honor Him in the big things. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. Seek to grow in godliness. Seek to progress in godliness. Seek to conform yourself more and more by the power of God's grace to the character of Christ. And listen, that word train, that word train could also be translated discipline. And you and I know this, that anything worth doing, any skill that you have, took some discipline to develop. Again, godliness is the same way. But we need to be clear to distinguish between legalism and discipline. Legalism, if you're unfamiliar with the term, legalism is motivated by, an, by, by a desire to justify ourselves, or it's, a, or it's motivated by a desire to perform in a certain way to earn something from God. Legalism would say, if you want God to love you, you need to do X, Y, and Z. That's legalism. And legalism would say something like, hey, God, hey, did you see that? Woke up every morning this week, read the word, Spend some time reading the Bible. Aren't you proud? That means you're going to make my kids behave this weekend, right? <laughs> That's legalism. That's legalism. And it's, and it's toxic. See, discipline. Discipline is motivated by love for the goal and love for the process. We discipline ourselves for the pursuit of something greater. Discipline would say, God, I maybe didn't feel like it every day. But it was a joy to open your word. Out of love for you, it was a joy to open your word. Thank you for meeting me there. That's discipline. Discipline is beautiful and light and freeing. Legalism is ugly and heavy. And it's just so fascinating to me. Paul's talking about training for godliness. And he decides to contrast it with something. And he could have chosen anything by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could have inspired Paul to contrast training and godliness with anything. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't say, avoid the devil, but train yourself in godliness. 
He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Godliness, a godly life, is a life of radical honesty. A godly life is a commitment to the truth wherever it leads and whoever it makes look good or bad. A godly life is a life of relentless integrity and transparency. And when you and I see the immeasurable greatness of knowing Christ, when you and I are so overwhelmed by His love for us and so transformed by His Spirit working in our hearts, we will grow to value Him above our agendas, above our perspectives, above our opinions, above our desire for power, above our desire for influence, above our own reputations, and above anything else that might incline us to believe that which is irreverent or silly or false. So much in the Christian life comes down to a heart that is transformed by the beauty of Jesus Christ, and this is no different. Avoid irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The witness of the big C church in America is devastated when you and I buy into what is irreverent and silly and false. There is a better way. Train yourself for godliness. Paul goes on, For bodily training is of some value. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. Now, scholars are split on what Paul means here. Some say, well, okay, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is living in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a city that placed a ton of emphasis on physical fitness, on body image and attractiveness. I know that's really different than our culture today. So just try to imagine what that would be like. And because physical fitness was such a big deal, Paul is using something familiar to make a broader point. He's saying, sure, yeah, bodily training, that's great. There's no, no, nothing wrong with, with physical fitness and, and bodily training. But understand, no matter how many pull-ups you do, a day is coming when you won't be able to do another one, right? <laughs> so bodily training is of some value. But godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this life and the life to come. In the same way that you would train yourself physically, train yourself for godliness. That's one perspective. The other perspective is that, is that uh, in Ephesus, there were different people that were engaging significantly in more kind of physical spiritual disciplines, like fasting and other forms of deprivation that were, that were designed to help increase their focus on the Lord. And, and what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, that's all great if it's done for the right reason. Training your body for the purpose of spiritual growth is, is fine, but don't do it out of legalism. Don't do it out of some sort of dry religious duty. Do it because, much like with our 40-day fast we're going through, do it because you want to be consciously more connected to the Lord. There's some benefit to that. But just remember, bodily training is not the point. Godliness is the point. So who's right? I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. There's strengths, strengths and weaknesses to both arguments. I would be more inclined to think the first is probably accurate, but, but I'm not really sure. But here's what I do know. Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells Timothy, godliness is of value in every way. And I just wonder, if godliness is so valuable, if that's really true, why don't you and I care about it more? 
And listen, I'm not saying we don't care about it at all. But I am saying that and I think for most of us, if we're honest, we probably don't pursue godliness in a way that would make sense if we really believed that godliness held value in every way. And I think part of the issue is, if we're honest, godliness sounds like a good idea, but it doesn't really sound that fun. If we're just being honest. I mean, maybe we think about some caricatures in, in society. If you're older, you remember the church lady on Saturday Night Live or, or, or Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Or maybe you think about kind of a, you know, a relative or someone you know who just sort of makes every conversation awkward. And you're like, if that's godliness, no thanks. But, we know, but again, we've been even saying, we know that that's not true godliness. And, to, and listen, to believe, this, don't miss this, this is so crucial. To believe that godliness is unfulfilling is to misunderstand God. Because God has a vested interest in our joy. God is glorified by our joy. So we misunderstand Him if we believe that godliness will not be fulfilling. Godliness will be fulfilling because it is of value in every way. It's in every way. But So part of it is maybe we don't think it will be that fun. But there's a bigger issue. And I think the bigger issue is we think that godliness sounds good, but it just kind of sounds like a lot of work. Like, let me put it to you this way. I really want to be in shape. I just don't really want to get in shape. Anybody relate to me on that? <laughs> or, or I want to be a patient person. I really, I sincerely want to be a patient person. But I don't really want to grow in patience. Because you don't grow in patience when your life is awesome, right? In the same way, I want to be a godly person. I, I really do. I want to be a person who, who reflects the, the character of Christ to, the, to those who are closest to me and, and anyone who I would meet. I want to do that. But I don't know that I really want to deny myself as much as I would need to to grow in Christ-like character. After all, what is irreverent and silly, that's easy. Godliness sounds kind of hard. Giving in to my own selfish whims, that's easy. Godliness sounds, sounds hard. And I think for some of us, I think for some of us, we say at the end of the day, I just don't really know that I want to do the things that would be required of me to grow in Christ-like character, even though I know it's what's best for me. I wonder if any of us can relate to that. So I need to be reminded, I myself, I need to be reminded that this is true, what Paul is saying, that godliness is of value in every way. That if I am a godly person, I will be a better husband. I'll be a better dad. I'll be a better pastor. I'll be a better boss. I'll be a better employee. I'll make wiser financial decisions. I will appropriate my time more effectively. It will bring value and increased value to my recreational activities. It will save me from all of the self-inflicted wounds that we walk into when we're walking in our own selfishness. It truly is of value in every Way I need to keep that in front of my silly, selfish heart as much as I can. And I suspect that might be the case for you as well. We need to keep that in front of us. Yes, godliness is challenging. Yes, godliness will require us to deny what is irreverent and silly. But again, it brings richness in every area of our lives. So come on, we need to be people who develop the skill of paying attention to what we pay attention to. And we need to be people who pay attention 
to that which leads to our godliness. Godliness is not awkwardness. Godliness is not weirdness. Godliness is certainly not dry and dusty religiosity. Godliness is life and life to the full. Godliness is life and life to the full. It infuses beauty and meaning into every element of our lives. And Paul finishes with these words. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We need to be clear really quick here what Paul is not saying. Paul is not teaching universalism here. Universalism is the idea that that everyone is eventually saved regardless of of what they believe. What, What Paul is saying is he's saying that in Jesus Christ, the doors of access into the family of God have been blown open wide. So now salvation is possible for all people. God is, God is the Savior of all people. Some call, scholars think that also the Christian community in Ephesus was only reaching out to certain types of people and kind of playing favorites. Again, I know we can't relate to this, but that's what they were doing. And Paul's trying to say, hey, listen, God is for everybody. And then that salvation is experienced by those who believe. The, the word translated especially could also be translated namely or particularly. The idea is salvation is experienced by those who believe, by those who have made a faith commitment to Jesus Christ. But the main point of the verse is this. Why why do we do what we do? Why why do we engage with a life of faith? Why do we do the work of denying what is irreverent and silly? Why do we do the work of paying attention to what we pay attention to? Why do we go through, in a life of faith, let's just be honest, there is toil and there is striving involved at times. Why do we do this? Why? Paul says, because... We've set our hope. We have paid attention to the object of our hope. And the object of our hope is the living God. That word living is not an accident. He is contrasting it with the many dead gods, the idols that existed in the city of Ephesus. And make no mistake about it, we may not worship statues, but there are just as many idols in our culture today as there were in that culture then. Those are dead idols that are unworthy of our hope. We are called to be people who set our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Pay attention to the object of our hope. He saves us. He saves us from sin. He saves us from death and from selfishness and from smug religion. He saves us and invites us into a beautiful life of godliness and paying attention to that which might lead us to godliness. This week, Christians around the world are going to celebrate... Reformation Day. It's celebrated every year around this time of year. It's on Tuesday, on on Halloween. And Reformation Day commemorates the day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg, Wittenberg Chapel and set off a firestorm and a revolution in Europe that we now know of as the Protestant Reformation. The world has literally never been the same since Martin Luther did that. Contained in that document were such radical ideas at the time as that salvation is by by faith by grace alone through faith alone, the cornerstone of what we believe, right? And Bridgeway and millions of other churches around the world and throughout the centuries owe their existence in part to Martin Luther and those who came after him and the Protestant Reformation. And if this feels like a really hard left turn, just hang with me for a second. It's going to make sense in a minute. And this year, Reformation Day is particularly special because it marks the 500th anniversary of that famous day. And in the decades that followed, 
Martin Luther. In the decades that followed, documents called catechisms were created to help people understand the faith. If you were raised in a catechizing tradition, you know all about this. If you weren't, a catechism is a series of questions and answers that new believers were meant to memorize to help them understand the truth of their faith. And as I was thinking about this this week, thinking about, well, 500th anniversary of Reformation Day, that, that feels like a big deal. We should, we're sons and daughters of the Reformation. We should probably mention that. And as I was thinking about this idea of setting our hope on the living God, I thought about the very first question of arguably the most famous catechism of them all, the Heidelberg Catechism. And the question reads this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's hope. That's real hope, ladies and gentlemen. If we pay attention to that sort of truth, it forms us. Our attention influences our outcome. So if you and I want to be people who live lives of great purpose for our, for our joy and God's glory, we must be people who pay attention to the words of our faith. To be people who have the courage and the wisdom to reject that which is irreverent and silly, even if it confirms our opinions. And have the wisdom and courage to train ourselves in godliness. And then we have to be people who set our hope, not on anything this world can offer us, but on the living God. So I want to invite the prayer team on up. And I, I want to invite you to join me. In a life, it's a life we live however imperfectly, but in a life of paying attention to what you pay attention to. And paying attention to that which leads to godliness. There might be some toil involved. There might be some struggle involved. Honesty might be painful, but it's going to be worth it. Why? Because godliness really truly is of value in every way. And it holds promise in this life and the life to come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that that is true. Thank you that godliness does hold value for this life and the life to come. God, I just pray that by your spirit and by your grace, that you would be people who so capture our hearts with the beauty of godliness that we would count it a joy and a privilege to discipline ourselves for it. God, we don't want to be a people of legalism or religious duty, but we want to believe what is true about you. We want to believe what is true about the world. So help us to be people who see godliness for the jewel that it is. Help us to see the immense value of pursuing it. And God, as we seek to be those sorts of people, we seek to be people who live out Christ-like character. God, may we be a witness of your love to a world around us that so desperately needs a touch of, a, touch of it. Empower us for that sacred task. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.